We're going to kind of start our rolling start here and let folks filter in a little bit from coffee time. Um, I think, I think we all basically know each other in here, but just in case, I'm Rebecca Lamont. I'm executive pastor here at the church, and this is my husband, Joel, who uh, is not on the staff here, contrary to popular belief. <laughs> he teaches Old Testament at Emory University in the Candler School of Theology, and we almost never teach together, so this is kind of a treat. You can come up here. This is kind of a treat for us. We're going to tag team this last session in the summer series on great figures of the Old Testament, today we come to Moses. So let's open with a little word of prayer, if y'all would join me in prayer. Lord, these old stories of the faith are challenging and confusing and frustrating and sometimes also helpful and inspiring in ways that are obvious. Help us to uncover the ways that might not be obvious. Help us to be open to being changed by your word. Amen. So what do we think we know about Moses? Just holler stuff out. Say it again. He didn't want to go. We're going to talk about that. That's right. What else? Not a great speaker. Right. He maybe had a stutter. He struggled to speak publicly. He wanted his brother Aaron to do the talking for him. What else? Nothing? Bad temper. We're going to talk about that too. Thanks, Tim. What about when he was born? Y'all remember this dramatic story of... Yeah, he was a... (laughs) Bill Ernest for the win. He was a basket case. He was a basket case. That's right. That's right. So a, a really highly dramatic story all the way through the life of this great figure of the Old Testament, Moses, from the time he was born through so many almost hard to imagine encounters through the story of Moses. So today we are talking about him and we've titled this, uh, this presentation, The Man, The Myth, The Legend, <laughs> Moses. Um, Moses is, is traditionally understood to be the author of the Pentateuch and Joel's going to talk more about that in just a minute. And in some ways he's the quintessential personality of the Old Testament because he is a connecting point to so many other things, right? So he is the person who receives the divine law, which becomes very important for the whole rest of the history of faith, including for our history, our understanding of our faith today. He is the person who mediates the divine name. Until Yahweh identifies Yahweh's self to Moses, the people don't necessarily have a name for the God there to worship and follow. That may sound odd to us, and it may sound like, oh, great, that was good that Yahweh identified Yahweh's self to Moses. But think for a minute what it would be like to be called to follow, called to worship, called to be faithful, and not have a name for God. That is counterintuitive, isn't it? That would be a very hard thing to do, even just on faith. So Moses receiving the divine name is a pretty important thing. And Moses becomes, of course, a great leader of the people. We're so seamless up here. It's incredible. It's like we've been together for 15 years. years. So Moses is the leader of the Exodus story from 
he emerges on the scene about Exodus 1, and he goes through the book of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. But it doesn't stop there. This is, those books are where Moses is featured prominently as the leader of these people, these Israelites who are moving around. But then after those books of the Pentateuch are over, we see the Mosaic tradition, the Exodus tradition, reappearing over and over again throughout the Old Testament. So Moses and the Exodus tradition could be understood as the pivotal moment of the Old Testament because it features so prominently in the book of Psalms, Isaiah, um, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, the Apocrypha, and in the intertestamental literature, Maccabees, Baruch, Esdras. And then in the New Testament, we have a, a continuation of the Mosaic tradition such that in, um, in the New Testament, the experience of the Exodus is seen as the pivotal background from which the whole story of Jesus' life and passion plays out. If you'll remember that the Passover is the ritual associated with the Exodus, and it's the Passover that forms the foundation for the passion narratives of Jesus. So in the way that God reveals God's self to Moses and draws the people from slavery to liberation in the Exodus, that becomes a fundamental metaphor for the entire uh, Old Testament. So when we get to the New Testament, we have this great scene of the transfiguration in which Jesus is put into the company of the greats of the Old Testament. Those other two greats, remember, Moses and Elijah. So there at the Mount of Transfiguration, you see Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and they're all lit up glorious, and then Moses and Elijah fall back into the background, and Jesus stays uh, as the one who's present. So Jesus is in the big three, at least in that moment, and then Jesus becomes the big one afterward. So um, we might say that Moses is the guy who, who kickstarts this whole great story. We might say that Moses is the most interesting man in the world. But maybe we shouldn't say that because that's. I, I, I she had no part in that joke, nope. that visual joke. Sorry. To the extent that that is a beer ad, it is disclaimed from this presentation. I'm not on the staff of this church, so I can do things like that. Right? Right. Yeah, there it is. So, who is Moses? We did a little bit of this at the beginning to call out some of the high points we know. And, and we know them largely why. Why do we remember these particular things that are sort of the markers of Moses' life? It's not a trick. They're unique, right? They're not the same story as our story. They're notable. They're remarkable. They may even strike us as odd. They're particularly dramatic in some instances. So who is this Moses? Well, as Bill said, he's a basket case. What we mean by that, of course, is that Moses, his very life is in danger from before his birth because the Hebrews are living enslaved in Egypt and Pharaoh orders that all the male babies will be killed. Moses is in danger. And so it, before he can even have the chance to become the most interesting person in the world, his life has to be saved. And you all remember the story? What happened? Baby Moses put into a basket, some sort of vessel made out of reeds, 
pitch, bitumen, the, the text tells us it's sort of a tarry substance, and he's placed in the reeds, and who comes along and finds baby Moses but Pharaoh's daughter, an Egyptian princess who represents the oppressor, comes and finds the baby of the oppressed. Well, that's not expected. That's not the way these stories are supposed to go. And the future of this entire people suddenly seems to rest on this bizarre moment when an Egyptian princess pulls a stranger's baby out of the water. This is one remarkable moment when this baby who is supposed to have been killed is not only saved, but pulled out of his own family, out of his own people, and raised in the household of the oppressor. That becomes very important later in his life. Um, that's actually a, a kind of narrative that existed in the ancient Near East. It's not common in our thinking today, necessarily, but it is sort of associated with heroes, if you think about it. There was a, a guy in the ancient Near East named Sargon. There it is. I love it. Sargon. I learned this name from Joel yesterday. <laughs> Sargon. And I said, wasn't he in the Lord of the Rings? And Joel said, no, that was Sauron. I said, good. I'm off to a good start. <laughs> Sargon was a hero of the ancient Near East who was also saved as a baby and put into a basket that had been made out of some kind of reeds and tar. And when we started brainstorming together about narratives where someone who ends up in a hero role is endangered from birth, we actually came up with several. Can you think of any superhero narratives where a baby is threatened and then grows up to be the hero? Superman, right, who else? Jesus, Jesus. Good. thank you. We should have maybe said Jesus before <laughs> Superman. Yes, Jesus, the slaughter of the innocents. Jesus was destined to die except for the intervention of faithful people. And then there are lots in fiction. Have any Harry Potter fans in here? A few, right? Bold yeah, there we go, Addison. Voldemort's coming for Harry Potter, and yet his life is saved. He's endangered but protected right at birth. Ultimately, Jesus is the great hero of our story. Mm -hmm. But you can see how this echo of a superhero narrative actually fits if you overlay it onto the Moses story. And those people also, in their own ways, went on to be great leaders of different people. So Moses' name is very interesting. In the um, Old Testament, it describes Pharaoh's daughter finding Moses and saying, I'll name him, uh, the word is in Hebrew, Moshe. I'll name him Moshe because I drew him out of the water. And the word the verb for draw him out is the Hebrew verb mashah. So here uh, his name is Moshe because I mashahed him from the water. So what we have there is um, a sort of etymological uh, game that's being played with the name of Moses. And it ha this happens a lot a lot of uh, Old Testament characters are named after a characteristic either that happened to them as a young person or because they look a certain way. Um, this is actually, though, what we call a folk etymology. Because if you think about Moses' name and you think about that little story of the naming, a lot of things don't quite make sense. First of all, the word in Hebrew is mashah, to draw out. 
Pharaoh's daughter is not going to be speaking Hebrew when she decides to name the baby that she, right? I mean, she's going to be speaking Egyptian. And she's going to call him, if, if, there were, if she was going to name him or drawing him out of the water, she would have used the Egyptian word to draw him out of the water, which I don't know at this point. Um, but I could find out for you. So what we, what we probably have then is a standard feature of the Old Testament, which, is, which are folk etymologies. These are etymologies that make sense in a sort of narrative context, and they give a certain identity to the character, but they don't make sense from a purely linguistic etymological perspective. In fact, when you look at the base word of Moshe and the Hebrew word masha, they don't relate etymologically. They sound similar, but they're actually not the same. So what we have is folk etymologies, and these folk etymologies, again, over and over in the Old Testament, but also over and over in my big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> Do you remember the, the father, and, and he said, give me a word, any word, and I'll tell you the Greek that's by, and he would just make stuff up. But it actually served an interesting purpose. It, it gave him a sort of uh, sense of identity and ownership and place in the world. Etymologies work this way throughout the Old Testament. They, they provide a little um, hook on which to hang the identity of a character. So um, we have a folk etymology that's described in the Old Testament. So what if we put on our linguistic hats and our etymological hats and say, all right, now let's be pure etymologists and figure out what Moses' name means. The best thought that we have is that Moses' name does come from an Egyptian word, and the Egyptian word is meses, M-S-S. Uh, we don't have know the vowels, so we just add E's whenever we don't know. Meses. Meses is a well-known Egyptian word that means together born of somebody. We have a bunch of Egyptian kings that have meses, in their name. For example, Rameses, or anglicized Ramses. Um, Tutmosis means born of the god Toth. Ramses means born of the god Ra. See what we're, see what we're doing here? So Moses' name could mean born of, not sure. Who, who is he born of? So we have a lot of options. Maybe, maybe he did have a name. Um, maybe he was born of the god of the Nile, which there is a god of the Nile, and it could have been his name could have been Messes, god of the Nile, but then his name was later changed to just Messes, born of, or maybe it's meant to be somewhat elliptical, born of Yahweh, this new god who reveals himself. We're not sure, but etymologically speaking, we think that his name uh, betrays some sort of Egyptian uh, basis. And there are a number of names uh, in the Exodus story that seem to have been Egyptian names that are then Hebraized and uh, included in the story of uh, Moses. So um, we have, we have an, a, a, there an interesting connection to the history of ancient Egypt through the etymology of Moses and others' names. We also know from Moses that he's a Levite. 
Um, he belongs to the tribe of Levi, Levi, which I've heard that you know from Ryan, that this is the, the tribe from which all priests derive. Uh, so there's a, you must be of a certain family to be a priest, and this is the way uh, Moses' family is described, and so, so too with his brother. So we talked a little bit earlier about how Moses ends up being sort of a man without a land, or maybe a man with too many lands, because he's saved by his family by being, in a sense, abandoned by his family. He's adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter, but really is not Egyptian and is not part of the Egyptian household. So he becomes this man who lives between places. He's an alien in every way. And this comes to a head several times in his life, and one of them is the one that Tim mentioned earlier, um, which is really the first action we see that Moses is taking. Until, uh, what do we have, Exodus 2.12, he's being described. The story is being told about his birth, about what is happening to him or with him or for him, but he hasn't yet done anything. And you all remember the scene when he comes out and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Do you remember this scene? And Moses is overcome with what I think can only be described as a violent anger, a rage. And what does he do? He kills the Egyptian. So the first active moment we have, the first thing Moses himself does that's described in the text is that he kills somebody. And this is in part because he is an alien. He's between these two groups of people, uncertain at that point about where he'll fit in and what his role will be. Um, He ends up, because of that moment, do you remember what happens to him? He flees. Right? He realizes, oh, I'm going to be killed because I've just killed an Egyptian slave master. So he flees to Midian. So not only is he outside the norm of the household of Pharaoh, outside the norm of his own people by birth, the Israelites in, who are still enslaved, but then he flees Egypt altogether and is quite literally a foreigner in the land of Midian where he marries a Midianite woman, Zipporah, becoming at yet another layer, an alien, an outsider, a unique sort of foreign person. Ah, yes, thank you. Um, I love the things you all said this morning when we were brainstorming about what we already know about Moses, because someone said first off, he didn't want, was that you, Lucretia? He didn't want to go. So we, we hear all through scripture God choosing and using in a good way people who what? Are what? Reluctant. Yes, people who are reluctant, people who are not the ones we might expect, people who are in some way flawed, people who have made mistakes, people who are outside the normal power structures and social structures and accepted structures to be carriers of a divine message or of God's purposes, to be leaders among a people of faith. This is a pattern throughout our entire history as Christians, and Moses is no exception. Now, Moses is called by God, basically told by God that he has a job to do, 
and Moses is reluctant. Moses doesn't want to go. And the call of Moses to this prophetic role follows a pattern that we can actually see over and over again through Scripture. And here's how it, it, it looks. So there are multiple times in Scripture when people are called in quite a literal way. Now, we, we would say here today that everyone in this room has a call, right? There is a call on our lives. These call narratives, as we might call them in the text, follow a pattern. And as much as we might like to have God come into our room and say something to us in a very literal way, that probably hasn't happened in quite the same way for most of us. If it has, I'd love to hear your story after, after class. But these are moments when, when God actually comes and speaks directly to a person who is being called, and they go in this order. It's formulaic. The divine confronts the person who is being called, and there's some sort of introductory conversation about what is happening, usually with the person feeling what? Shocked concerned, afraid, thinking maybe they're losing their minds because God is speaking to them. And God continues and gives a commission. And usually it's in quite straightforward terms. You have this job to do and go do it. Then almost always, and certainly in this pattern, the person who's being commissioned says, no, <laughs> I don't want to. I'm not good enough to, I don't have the skills you need, the risk is too great, the objections come in different forms, but there's always an objection. The person who is being called to be a prophet doesn't want to be called to be a prophet. God reassures that yes, you can do it, you are the person I need, you have the skills, I will be with you. There's the reassurance from God that God will be with the person who's being called. And then there is some kind of sign, like the burning bush, right? That's a pretty, pretty concrete sign that God gave Moses, that it was indeed God, and that Moses was indeed being called. It happens in other ways. Do you remember what Gideon got? This is a, this is a more obscure, a fleece, a fleece that was wet, a fleece that was dry, Gideon kind of, he, uh, he had a lot of chutzpah about him. He decided he needed two signs from God to believe that this was happening and demanded the terms. But God gave the signs of this dry fleece and wet fleece. I can't remember the order. Wet then dry, dry then wet? Don't know. Anyway, the fleece, the fleece was the sign for Gideon. So this particular formula occurs several times. Can you think of other people who were called in this way? Samuel, Isaiah, Paul, oh, that's a great one. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Abraham. Yes. Jacob, sort of. Jacob, sort of. Jacob's a rascal. Mary. Ooh, good one. Mary, yes. Yeah. So God comes in in a very immediate, tangible way in an audible way, and then also in a tangible way, giving a sign. And Moses' call follows this pattern. Moses is called by God. Now, Moses, as we've said, doesn't want to be called as a prophet. And here's the thing. If somebody comes and tells you they're excited about being a prophet, they probably aren't a prophet. Because being called into a prophetic role, into this divine ministerial role, 
usually means that God is calling you to do something hard or dangerous that is going to put you in situations that are not going to be fun and comfortable. That is why God says, I will be with you. If it were easy, you wouldn't need God with you in the same way. So people who are being called into this role are also being told that they're going to have God's presence because whatever they're being told to do is going to be hard. That's the truth. And it was hard for Moses. Very soon after he's called, we have four of the most obscure and disturbing verses in Scripture. Uh, These are at the end of chapter 4. When Yahweh, the God who has just called Moses, tries to kill Moses. Remember this? You heard a sermon on this lately? Probably not. Sorry. There are four verses where it says, and Yahweh decided to kill Moses. Check it out. It's in the Bible. And Zipporah, his wife, through a sleight of hand, gets Yahweh off Moses' back. Do you know how she does it? You heard this story? She, circum- she circumcises Bernard knows. Bernard knows. I know. Yeah. Well, so it's not, it's really hard to say. Um, she circumcises the son of Moses and Zipporah using a flint knife is what we have. We don't know anything more about the son except this is his first announcement. She circumcises Moses' son and then touches the blood from the circumcision to Moses' feet. And usually in the Bible, whenever um, it's describing someone's feet in a delicate context, it's, it's a euphemism for uh, the genitals. So it might be that Zipporah is tricking God into thinking that Moses has in fact been circumcised when he probably wasn't circumcised given that he was put in a basket upon his birth. How crazy is that? And then she says uh, that she's uh, a bridegroom, uh, that he's a bridegroom of blood. And you're like, whoa, what just happened? Did Zipporah, Moses' Midian night wife just tricked God into thinking that Moses was actually circumcised and why would God want to kill him anyway I wish that I had the answer for this particular conundrum I don't but I wanted you to know that in addition to being called by God at for at least four verses God wanted to kill Moses but it was only because of his uh, wife Zipporah that that worked out I don't have a slide illustrating that event Probably it's better that I don't. What do you think? Better that you don't. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I agree with that. So it's interesting that after Moses started in such a dangerous way and then was saved in such a dramatic way that we have this unexplained moment when God seems to be ready to kill Moses And that is left unexplained. The text does not circle back to that, does not connect it in some way that gives it meaning or says that it was, you know, as with Abraham or something. It wasn't a test. It wasn't uh, God experimenting with Moses' leadership. It's a standalone little scene that doesn't connect with anything else. And yet, 
because of Zipporah's actions, apparently, Moses lives and becomes a great leader, of course, of the Hebrew people. Um, he's the one, as we saw in the opening slide, this, this has been represented in movies and in art, and the opening slide was a very famous, it's part of a bigger piece from Chagall that shows, sorry, don't get, there it is, there that it is. shows Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, this tablet representation that's become our image of how the law is received. So Moses, who was almost killed, becomes the person to receive, the mediator, if you will, to receive God's law and to be the person who transmits God's law to God's people. And he, while he is never, uh, he never becomes divine himself, he's a minister and a representative of the divine his whole life. Um, and we talked earlier about how Moses received the divine name and is the person who ultimately leads the story, the deliverance story, the Exodus story. And despite his frustration and his difficulty with speech, his hesitance to be the public speaker and his insistence that this should be his brother Aaron who's going to speak uh, rather than he, he becomes a preacher, really, if you think about it. The book of Deuteronomy, I hadn't seen this slide, <laughs> is a long sermon. <laughs> The book of Deuteronomy is a sermon retelling the story of the exodus of God's people. And it is Moses who is retelling this story after it has happened. And what does telling the story do? What does telling any story do? Passes it along. Reminds, right. Reminds people, gives them a basis to be faithful. It creates creates cohesion and identity. It reinforces the group as a group. And if you're, if you're wandering in the wilderness, what does it do? It gives you something to hold on to, right? It's not just a reminder in general. It's a reminder that you're called, a reminder that you've been delivered, a reminder that you go together and that you're God's and that you will not wander in the wilderness forever. So... Moses is also, in addition to being a preacher, the tradition has it that Moses is an author. Now, this is a really uh, complicated topic that we don't have a ton of time for. But I'm going to try to, to give you as a best, as my best and most honest uh, assessment of Moses as an author that we can have in 15 minutes. And I hope you feel free to ask us questions because this is a complicated question. Um, but but here, here it is. There are a number of places in the Old Testament where it describes Moses as writing stuff down. Um, for example, um, we hear in Exodus 24, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And again, a number of other times we hear Moses being described as one who's writing stuff down, usually legal um, ordinances that are given from God that Moses is going to then relate to the people. So we have him early on in a couple of a couple of uh, portions of Scripture described as a writer. Also, in the book of Nehemiah, which is a number of hundreds of years later, it's described that uh, Ezra, the scribe, 
is reading the book of the law of Moses. And when we think of the book of the law of Moses, that word law is the Torah, and that word Torah becomes associated not simply with the law, as in the legal codes that we find in selections in those first five books of the Bible, but the Torah, by the time of Ezra, is understood as the entire first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So that is understood potentially at this point as the law of Moses. So you see, you start to see at this point in the, in the book of Nehemiah a cohesion of those first five books with the main character, Moses, being understood as the one who's responsible for collecting and writing all of this material down. Now, um, for it to be the law of Moses, from a grammatical perspective, doesn't necessarily mean that Moses wrote it. But, because you can understand that word of, between those two nouns, law of Moses, in a number of different ways. Um, it could mean a law inspired by Moses, or a law that Moses wrote, or a law associated with Moses, but what we have, grammatically, is law of Moses. So by the time that the rabbinic writers were doing their work, they clearly understood and thought that Moses wrote the whole of the first five books of the Bible. So if you read anywhere in the Midrash, it'll describe, um, Moses said X, and then the quote that will come is any of those first five books of the Bible. So if they're quoting Genesis, the rabbis will say, Moses said X. If they're quoting Numbers, Moses said Y. If they're quoting Deuteronomy, Moses said Z. So the rabbis clearly thought that Moses was the author. This is the context of the New Testament as well. So the New Testament frequently refers to those first five books of the Bible as the law of Moses with Moses as the author. So if you thought coming in here that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible, you're stepping into an extremely long tradition of understanding Mosaic authorship. So the question is, is this tradition true? Does it hold up? Well, early on in the uh, history of biblical interpretation, there were some rabbis by even 1,000 AD, sorry, 1,000 in the Common Era, who started to wonder and scratch their head about this question of, did Moses, did one guy write all five of those books? Um, some of the most interesting um, objections to Mosaic authorship by these rabbis were the fact that Moses' death is described in Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 12. a nice trick, right? <laughs> if you can do it. Moses' death. You remember he's at the top of the mountain and he's looking over into the promised land. He so wishes he could go over, but God says, no, you can't. And then Moses dies. And Moses is writing that out? The rabbis thought that was a little weird. There's also another spot in um, Numbers 12. This is a great quote, too. Numbers 12. Now the man Moses was very humble. 
more so than anyone else on the face of the earth. That's in the Bible. Numbers 12, 3. Would the most humble man in the world write that? The rabbis weren't so sure. That gave them pause. So you can see that there was some early skepticism based on a couple of odd moments in the Pentateuch where we think, eh, I don't know about this Moses. But notwithstanding these early skeptics among the rabbis, there was a large uh, understanding that Moses was the, uh, the traditional author of the Pentateuch for most of Christian history. But then Mosaic authorship ran into the buzzsaw of the Enlightenment. This was a real problem for Mosaic authorship. Because in addition to the early skeptical observations about Mosaic authorship, there was a new sort of critical turn in Enlightenment Europe that asked difficult questions of cohesion of all sorts of ancient literatures. And when they found what they considered were inconsistencies or errors or uh, implausible items in a biblical story, they, that made them think, you know what? This text wasn't written by one guy who has this, all this authority. This text is a sham. This text is ridiculous, and the Christian and Jewish traditions on which this text has been written are also a sham. So we have these vivid critiques of biblical inconsistencies by folks like Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, Baruch Spinoza, and especially Voltaire, who were using inconsistencies with regard to the question of a single author for the Pentateuch as reasons to jettison the whole biblical tradition, including the many faith traditions that grew out of the Bible. So biblical scholars and Christians who were connected to the philosophical debates of the time had a real problem. Namely, the authority of the scripture was under massive assault by the intelligentsia of the time. So biblical scholars tried to figure out how we could consider the Bible in a rational way. And that's what we call... Uh, this, what's called the dawn of higher criticism of the Bible. And this is a way of saying, um, in fact, maybe there wasn't one traditional author of the Pentateuch, but maybe there were a bunch of authors of the Pentateuch, and the, and the, the Pentateuch was written over a long period of time. So why uh, did this uh, idea come about? Well, if you, if you weigh the evidence, as these early biblical scholars did, they said, on the one hand, you have this long tradition. It's been going on at least since the New Testament that Moses is the author. On the other hand, you've got all of these issues. First of all, the first issue challenging Mosaic authorship is the simple fact that over and over and over again throughout Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, sorry, Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus. Deuteronomy does use the first person. In those three books, the third person is used to describe Moses. That's a really simple question as to whether a book is written by an author. 
And we have a number of biblical texts where we have the first person being described. The book of Nehemiah is a long memoir. It says, I built the wall, I went around, I walked around it, I fought off the bad guys, I, 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 I. But here in Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus, God said to Moses, and Moses did this. So there's this huge swath of evidence that would suggest, eh, maybe Moses didn't write it because he didn't write it like he was talking about his own biography. So there's that huge piece of evidence. There's another a very complex problem of anachronisms in the Old Testament. Now, I'm using a visual aid to help you understand what anachronisms are if you don't have it in your brain already. Anachronism is when something from one time period is inserted into a time period much earlier in the, in the past, and they don't make any sense together. So, for example, this Renaissance boy holding the iPad. You know that that wasn't painted in 1582, right? How do you know? The iPad. Because if it were, that would be, that would be a, it's a way of, you can show uh, a forgery, basically. So there are numerous anachronisms in the Old Testament. If the Old Testament was written by Moses in around 1200 BCE, which is the putative date for Moses' life, you would not have a number of different phrases that appear in the Pentateuch. For example, over and over again in the, in the Old Testament, you'll get this statement in the Pentateuch, to this day, you can see so-and-so, which suggests that the text is referring to a long time back in the past, right? I would only say, to this day, you can still see the marks of um, Sherman's attacks on, you know, the palisades. I would only say that in the present. I would not say that if I were writing, you know, one year after uh, uh, the, the Civil War. So we have this kind of locution over and over to this day. Again, at that time, which suggests the time was a long time ago. Um, there's another uh, common phrase that describes the land of um, the land of Jordan which is on the east side of the Jordan River, is described as the land beyond the Jordan, as if the author was writing in Israel. But you got to remember, Moses was never in Israel. The whole story of Moses happened in Egypt and then on this side of the Jordan over here because he never crossed over. But the text describes this land as the land beyond the Jordan. So it makes you wonder, maybe Moses didn't write it. Um, there's also a description, before any king reigned over Israel, which suggests there was a time when the text was being written when there were kings in Israel. But Moses never oversaw any of that time. And there are references to Philistines who didn't arrive in that land. We know this from history by the time that the Pentateuch was written. So there are numerous occasions where we find anachronisms or inconsistencies in the text that suggest that mosaic authorship was not uh, a reality. Furthermore, um, we have a number of doublets and triplets, over 50 doublets and triplets. These are stories that are told in multiple different ways and seem to be collected together. So the creation story, 
Genesis 1.1 to 2.4a is the first creation story. Then Genesis 2.4b and following to chapter 4 is the second creation story. In the flood stories, you have um, two flood accounts that are basically woven together verse in a verse-by-verse verse, uh, uh, way. We have numerous experiences of an endangered ancestor where an um, ancestor like Abraham or Isaac goes into a land and his he claims that his wife is really his sister, so he won't be uh, he won't get in trouble by the major king in the land. This happens three times, and there's many, many more of these doublets, which suggests that there were independent traditions that were brought together by somebody rather than a single author who sat down and started writing a story from the beginning, and as God was telling him what to do, he just sort of kept going on, and his hand just did what it's going to do. Okay. All of these would suggest that we have, in fact, a composite text. And then lastly, we have numerous descriptions of the name of God. So Yahweh is the name of God that we find in one group of texts, and Elohim is the name of God that's described in another group of texts. And I'm sorry I'm going for a little bit long, but I'm going to tell you this one very important thing, and then we'll stop. With regard to the name of God, Rebecca started by saying, how at the burning bush, God revealed God's name to the people, Yahweh, so that they would know who they were following out into the wilderness. And it says clearly, this was the first time that people heard the name of God. This is Exodus 6, 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as Elohim, God Almighty. But my name is Yahweh. I did not make myself known to them by this name. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, uh, whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will free you from, my, from your burdens. I will redeem you with my outstretched hand. They thought that they were worshiping Elohim. God Almighty. But Yahweh is saying, my name is actually Yahweh, and I'm going to bring him out. So, like Rebecca said, the first revelation of God's name. The problem is, in Genesis 4.26, Genesis 4.26, Adam knew his wife, and she bore him a son named Seth. For she said, God has appointed me to, for another child instead of Abel, because Cain killed him. To Seth was born a son, and he named him Enosh. So that's the third generation. At that time, people began to invoke the name of Yahweh. Say what? Voltaire would have said, ha, 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 say, I told you. Your whole tradition is a sham. Get rid of it. Time for secularism. Um, but what the biblical scholars did was they said, okay, hold on. How can we make rational sense out of a biblical text that seems to have so many inconsistencies? Well, instead of one author, we can say that we have this composite text that's written by a, a series of authors and editors and redactors over time, and they have brought it together to, to be a massive testament to a whole people, not to the simple authorship of one individual. Okay. So uh, some, some people might be concerned right now, and fortunately we don't have any time for questions.
So if you're concerned, please come talk to me or um, Dr. Sundermeyer, and uh, it'll be great. Uh, thank you for your time again, and uh, we're, we're glad to be here. He's kidding. I'm we'll be happy to take questions. We have maybe a couple couple minutes yeah, for questions. Two yeah, two minutes. Um, so let me just let me start with Mo let me say something about Moses. It might feel like someone has taken the rug out from under you if you think that the one authority of the Old Testament, Moses, is not the author. It's like, oh no, what am I going to do? I've got no more grounding in life. Some people think that way. Uh, maybe you don't. This is the good news about the Scripture. The Scripture is a series of uh, accounts collected by a community over time that's constantly referring back to its own traditions. It's never jettisoning, jettisoning a tradition. It's saying, we have this series of authoritative texts. How do we make sense of them all together? And the, so the, uh, the pattern of the production of the Old Testament is author, editor, compiler. Authors, editors, compilers. This is a, such a great thing about the Christian tradition. Unlike other traditions that have a simple author that's everything hinges on that author's authority. Without that author's authority, your whole scripture has no authority. And I won't name the traditions that have that problem, but there are them out there. And, but the Christian tradition says we have a text and then we have a series of people that are, that are reflecting on the text over time. And so we have this community that's enlivened by the same spirit that was at hand, that was at work in the authoring, that was at work in the editing, that was at work in the compiling, that's at work in the community today figuring it out. It, it makes us have a supple scripture that we can interpret in successive periods of time rather than being locked in one particular time in which the text was written. Does that make sense? Sorry, it doesn't. But um, that's what I'm going to say. Other questions? Thank you. Thanks so much. Oh, Mary, Mary Martha. Hello.